Well, it's good to be with you again uh, this morning after taking a week away as we celebrated Resurrection Sunday together. We are today going to go back to our series about David titled Chasing God's Heart. And throughout this series, we have been looking at the many characteristics of David's own heart and how that each one of them collectively created the kind of man who, who was aptly given the name or the title, a man after God's own heart. We've seen David's courageous heart, a discouraged heart, a generous heart. We've also seen a passionate heart, a sinful heart. And today we are going to see a broken heart. We all know that there are a lot of things in life that uh, have the potential to break our heart. But I don't think that there is anything that can break your heart more than a relational heartbreak. Because relationships are very special. They are often given to us as gifts from God. And when one is severed, for whatever reason, for whatever situation, it can be devastating. You know, it makes me think of a couple who stands before a judge in a divorce court, and inevitably their minds are going back to earlier and happier days. The day when they stood in front of their family and friends and, and, and spoke their vows to each other uh, with so much hope, with, with so much love, with the plan of spending their entire life together as husband and wife. There were goals that were established. There were promises that were made. The moment they didn't even think that failure was an option. But over time, things started to deteriorate and they never dreamed that they would end up in a courtroom of law. And they asked themselves, how did it ever come to this? I think about two friends who started a business together and there was great joy in building this business from the ground up. And doing it together as partners was a big part of the drive to do it in the first place. But somewhere along the line, the wheels fell off. They end up having to dissolve the whole business by bringing in a third party mediator and they wonder, how did it get to this point? Or parents who not perfectly but faithfully raised their children as best they knew how. They provided for that child's needs. They did their best to love and support them along the way. But when that child grew old enough to be out on their own, they write the two people who raised them right out of their life. No communication, no letters, no pictures. It's like the relationship never even existed. And life goes on with this huge, unexplainable void. And mom and dad look at each other and ask themselves, how did this ever happen to us? So I'll say it again, out of all the different kinds of heartbreaks, the saddest of all is a relational heartbreak. And as your pastor, I, I wish that none of you would ever experience relational heartbreak. Therefore, I wanna talk about what leads to relational heartbreak. Because I think some of the saddest words in the entire Bible are found in this story that we are going to look at together today. It's when King David got word from his troops that they had been victorious over David's rival. A man who tried to seize the throne is now dead. Now you think that there would be some relief that would come to David when he, when he hears this news, but there is none. Because this rival, this opponent, this enemy was his own son, Absalom. And at that moment, I am sure that David reflected on a time when Absalom was born. And he began to think about all the dreams that he had for his son. And I'm sure he wondered, how did it come to this? As he stands at the gate overlooking the city and he weeps uncontrollably with a broken heart. You see, David loved Absalom. I know he did. He said that he would have died in Absalom's place, and I believe that he meant that. But I have to tell you something else that I believe this morning, church, and that is love isn't enough. Hear me out here. If you are a person who looks at love as primarily a kind of a feeling or a strong emotion, well, it's not enough. Because love your love and my love must do 
certain things. If love's really going to help the one that you love, if brothers and sisters are going to live together and dwell together in unity, then love must act in certain ways. And as you read the scriptures, one thing is obvious. David and Absalom did not end up where they, where they ended up for no reason at all. Relational breakdowns don't just happen, nor does relational heartbreak. There were crossroads. There were moments in the story of David and Absalom's life where crucial mistakes were made. Times when if another road had been taken, things might have turned out entirely differently with a whole lot less dysfunction. So today I wanna to take a look at some of those crossroads. I wanna talk about what love must do in order to minimize the chance of relational heartbreak. Our story begins in 2 Samuel 13. So if you have your Bible and you wanna go ahead and turn there, please do. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you. Of course, all the scriptures I'll be reading will be on the screens behind and you can follow along. But this story contains more scripture than we could ever possibly read in one morning together. So I'm going to summarize the story for you. And however, I am going to read certain pieces of scripture that you can follow along with me as we move ahead. But I encourage you to take the time this week to read this entire story from beginning to end so you'll better understand what I'm talking about here today. I wanna give you an extent or give you a sense to the extent to which David's family was severely messed up. And you may not know all of this because he is such a prominent, revered character in the Bible, but David's family was severely dysfunctional. And I think it's worth mentioning that dysfunctional families were not created in the 21st century. It's a term that we use, it's popular in our culture, but it's existed ever since families were existed. I mean, let's be honest. We all have some dysfunction in our families, don't we? And if you say no, forget you. You do, I'm here to tell you. You may not see it, but others can see it. You've got dysfunction. We all do, let's just admit that. You really see it come to light when you get together with your big family during this, the holidays, don't you? Oh yeah, those aren't the things you're supposed to be amening. I just wanted to. It's during the holidays that you see dysfunction with greater clarity, am I right? And it's during those times that you walk away and you go, man, my family's messed up. Well, David's family had some major, major issues and I wanna offer you a list of them, adultery, Polygamy, substance abuse, years of total estrangement, vandalism, open hatred, rape, murder, and incest, to name a few. Now, all of a sudden, you're thinking to yourself, I guess my family isn't that dysfunctional after all. <laughs> Anybody top that list, have a family that can top that list? I, I think not. Well, this is a snapshot of the things that are going on in David's family's life. So we have a young man named Amnon, and he was David's firstborn son. And as you read the scriptures, you find that Amnon developed a kind of a sexual obsession with David's daughter from another wife, whose name was Tamar. This is his own half-sister. And he's so consumed by his obsession that he becomes physically ill. And so he has one of his advisors, he and one of his advisors, advisors, they devise a plan for Tamar to prepare food for Amnon so that he could lure her into his bedroom. David the father is so clueless about what's going on in his own family that not only does he not notice Amnon's obsession with Tamar, but David actually is the one who sets up Tamar to go and to take care of her brother Amnon. And so as she goes in, she thinks that she is serving him food. But Amnon has other ideas. He tries to get her to sleep with him. Tamar, of course, refuses. But Amnon overpowers her, and he rapes his own half-sister. 
And afterwards, this is what the Bible has to say in 2 Samuel 13, 15 through 16. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she told him. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. I want you to notice the language that is being used here because it showcases our human nature in a very, very clear way and it tells us a whole lot about the human heart. After he rapes Tamar, Amnon calls his personal assistant and I want you to notice how he refers to her. Get this woman, not Tamar, not my sister, but get this woman out of here. And this is an interesting theme that runs through the story of David's life. Very often when one person is sinning against another, they'll avoid using the person's name or referring to their relationship that they have with that individual, and it's done as a way to dehumanize the individual. We saw this in the story of David and Bathsheba. When David's servant tried to warn him by saying, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? Isn't this somebody's daughter, my king, somebody's wife, somebody with a name? But to David, she was nothing more than that woman. We see when Saul was furious with his son Jonathan, he called him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Not my son and not the son of my wife, a rebellious woman. In the New Testament story of the prodigal son, the elder brother says to his father, this son of yours has squandered your money, not this brother of mine. We see this in real life. Many of you may reflect back a long time ago when President Bill Clinton was accused of misconduct with Monica Lewinsky. His initial statement of denial was, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. It's the same thing. This happens whenever we are involved in sin against someone. We never say their name because we don't want to look at them as someone with value. It's always just that man or that woman. So Amnon rejects his sister Tamar by saying, get this woman out of here, and the servant puts her out, and then he, he bolts the door shut behind her. Now I want you to try to imagine what must have been going on in her heart and in her spirit at that time when she hears the sound of that bolt sliding shut. This is an innocent girl. And one day, a door opens and she walks into that room and, and then that same door closes behind her as she walks out of that room and in between those two moments, her life has been destroyed. And it's interesting to me how that Tamar is probably the only person in this whole sordid story who shows integrity and especially courage. Amnon was counting on her to keep her mouth shut. This was a part of his strategy, to pretend like nothing happened at all, but Tamar refuses to go along with his plan. She went on to reveal, by the way, in a very public manner, what her brother had done to her. And because of the time and the culture in which she lived, you have to really understand and appreciate the courage required for her to step up and say these things because she risked the possibility of, of people not believing her and maybe even believing that she lured him into this situation. That's just the way the world was in those days. But she refused to be intimidated by Amnon or to cover up his evil. So she heroically takes a stand and then she waits for justice to occur. And as you read the story, you begin to get a better understanding of what's going on behind the scenes here. She was betting her life that her father would do the right thing by her. She was betting her life on David's character. She was waiting for her father, who was said to be a man after God's own heart, 
her father who had all the power of the throne behind him in order to set things straight, to do something or to say something, to stand up for her, to show at least a small measure of courage that he had shown in such remarkable ways in other situations as being a king. And while she waits, her brother Absalom finds out what happens to his sister and to protect her and to help his sister, he invites her to come and live in his home. So she, she lived with Absalom while the days and the weeks and the months went by as both of them were thinking, surely David, our father, the king, will take action. Surely tomorrow he's gonna do something. Well, here's what it says in the Bible in 2 Samuel 13, 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And as far as we can tell from the scriptures, David did absolutely nothing. He didn't lift a finger. Why not? The Bible doesn't tell us, so I, I can only speculate. Maybe he was preoccupied with, with a very important business that, that you have to take care of as a king. I don't know. Maybe he was afraid at what Amnon might do in response. I don't know. You know, parents are like that sometimes. When we need to do or say something that's really hard, sometimes we're afraid of what our children will do in response, and so sometimes we don't do anything. But I think it might be another reason. Because when you look at Amnon's behavior, how he lusted after a woman, and then he figured how he could use his own power and position to take from her what he wanted, and then he just discards her when he was through, where do you think he may have gotten that idea from? I think maybe David was paralyzed by reminders of guilt from his own past over his, his uh, completely morally corrupt actions within the story of his relationship with Bathsheba. But for whatever reason, as a father, when he most needed to take action, he did nothing. This is David who faced Goliath, who defied Saul, who led an entire nation. He didn't lift a finger to help his daughter. And this was his huge relational crossroad, the confrontation crossroad. This is how relational breakdown occurs. When you're aware of something is wrong, you can either act on it or you can ignore it. And I just wanna take time out to address this for a minute. There's a problem that you have and needs to be addressed and it needs to be confronted, but you know that addressing it is gonna be very hard. It's gonna be uncomfortable and it's going to take courage. So instead of addressing it head on, you instead sidestep it, you, you remain passive, and you kind of hope that the problem's gonna go away. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's someone in the workplace or somebody you attend church with who has a character issue or, or an attitude problem, and there's a wall that's building up between you and that individual, and, and you know it, and, you, and you're not dwelling together in unity. You could talk with them and you could address the problem. It might get messy. That's certain some, that is certainly something that you could do. You could try to help, but you just find it easier to ignore the problem. And if you ignore it long enough, you can kind of get used to living with it month after month, sometimes year after year, just like David did. For some, it can be a parenting deal. When you're a parent, you set boundaries for your children, you establish consequences for those boundaries. Well, how do your kids respond to those? Do, do your kids say, well, mom and dad have drawn a line in the sand and I, I can't do something that I really wanna do, so therefore I would never dream of stepping over that line. Do your kids do that? Or do they test you to see what will happen? Testing boundaries is what kids do for a living. It's in their job description. So maybe it's with one of your kids. Maybe it's with a friend. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with your boss. Perhaps it's a coworker. Just maybe it's somebody in this room. And enormous stakes are riding on your response, but you find yourself doing nothing. I'm telling you from experience, don't wait for it to go away. 
It's important that we love enough to confront these things head on, but also with as much skill and wisdom and grace as you know how to do. But you gotta hit it head on because if you don't, the problem is only gonna get worse. And if you wait until your hand is forced, I can tell you it will not go well. In your relational world, especially in a family, whenever sin is not dealt with directly and also redemptively, it's gonna lead to more sin. It it just will. And that's what happens here. Two years pass, imagine that, two years of humiliation for Tamar, two years of passivity from King David, two years of brooding vengeance from his son Absalom. You see, through all this, Absalom is becoming a very dangerous man. And whatever respect he once had for his father is leaking away. And it is being replaced instead with contempt. Until the day comes that Absalom decides his father is too gutless to do something, so he takes matters into his own hands. And this is what he does. Absalom finds a pretext in order to get his brother Amnon out of the city and away from everyone, and he gets him drunk. 2 Samuel 13, 28 says this. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike, da- strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. Now, where do you think he may have gotten a plan like that? You remember who it was that tried to get Uriah, got Uriah drunk twice so that he would follow along with this plan? David did. So Absalom avenges his sister Tamar by killing his half-brother Amnon. And he knows that after what he has done, he can't stick around. So Absalom runs away and he goes into exile and he's there for three years. Let's break this down. First, there's the rape of Tamar. Then there's a two-year period when David does absolutely nothing. Then Absalom kills his brother, and now he's in exile for another three years. It's been a total of five years. And now during that three-year period when Absalom is in exile, again, David does absolutely nothing. Three years of no contact with his son, who is greatly disillusioned by his father's lack of action and his lack of providing justice for his sister. And you can't help but think that if if David had acted responsibly in the first place, it might have set Absalom on a totally different path for his life. But David does nothing. In verse 39, it says, and King David longed to go to Absalom. But he didn't go. He stayed at the palace. He may have longed to do it, but he didn't do it. He did nothing. And finally, Joab, David's pseudo chief of staff, he intervenes and he got David to promise that Absalom could return from exile and not be harmed. So Absalom could come back home. And after three years in a distant country, Absalom comes back to Jerusalem. I want you to imagine for a moment what must be going on in his heart and mind. He wonders as he walks through those city gates What is my dad gonna do? Will he be harsh? Will he be tender? Will he forgive? What will he say? You know, we all have defining moments in our lives, don't we? This was going to be a defining moment in Absalom's life because David makes one of the greatest mistakes of his life. It says in 2 Samuel 14, 23, Joab went to Gersher and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem, but the king, and I want to point out here that the text doesn't talk about David as a father, but the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and he did not see the face of the king. This makes me think of the story of the prodigal son. If you'll recall, when the prodigal son comes home, the father does just the opposite. 
The father runs out to welcome his son home, but Absalom could not even see his father's face. When Absalom most needed a father who would just listen to him, listen to his confusion, listen to his anger, uh, discuss his bitterness and, and the hurt that he's feeling, listen to all of his disillusionment, he couldn't even see the face of the father, of his father, the king. Now this is another huge crossroad in their relationship. This is what I will call the listening crossroad. You see, sometimes love needs to confront, which we talked about, but other times love needs to listen. And what Absalom wanted most at that moment was a father who would just sit and listen to his thoughts and his fears and his concerns and his anger and his frustration. But David was not there to provide him with what he really needed. So Absalom tries to reach his dad again through Joab. He says, help me to see my dad. I, I wanna talk to my dad. But Joab wouldn't even return his calls because he knew what David's response was going to be. So for two years, Absalom lived in Jerusalem and he can see the palace from where he's living every single day. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows that he's not allowed to step foot in there. Everybody knows that Absalom and his father don't see each other, don't see eye to eye. They're in a broken and a daily festering relationship. And Absalom is humiliated in front of all of the people because he cannot see his father. So finally, he is so desperate that he sets fire to Joab's barley fields. Now he doesn't do this secretly. And also understand this is not about trying to do damage. He wants to get caught. And Joab asked him, he said, why have you done this? And Absalom, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, basically says, I have to do something to get my father's attention. I have to see my father. Let him condemn me if he wants to condemn me. If he tells me I've done something wrong and he's going to kill me, then, then have him kill me. Or, or if he's going to love me, then let, me, let him love me. But anything is better than this. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't go on like this. Can you imagine the level of frustration and anger in the heart of a child when the only way they know how to get their father's attention is to set a field on fire? And kids will do that. They would like to have their parents' undivided loving attention. And if they can't get it any other way, they will do something harmful. Sometimes they'll use drugs. Sometimes they'll shoplift or they'll find other ways to break the law, to get arrested, to get your attention. And it may be well that when they do these things, it's not just defiance or rebelliousness or foolishness. Maybe what's going on is that they're desperately hoping that somebody will pay attention to them. So we've all got to remember when things get difficult, when things get confusing, and when things get harmful, love must listen. And that makes me wonder about the people in my life and in your life. And I think back on times when I didn't listen. You're kind of there, but you're not really engaging. You're just letting things go in one ear and out the other. I think about difficult people. I, I think about the most vulnerable people, the little people, our children. Do we really listen well enough to them? Or do we discount our children's feelings and, and act as if what they're feeling isn't important. Sometimes you have kids who aren't very good at speaking their struggles at all. And that's when love has to ask. You've got to ask those probing questions to try to get information out of them. And even that's hard sometimes. Sometimes you've got to simply ask the right kind of questions in order to get to the bottom of the upset of what's going on. Well, Absalom, he's not getting either of those. So he chooses to set some fields on fire. And as a result, Joab makes some more arrangements because David is still doing nothing. Joab arranges for there to be a meeting. It's kind of a, a public deal. But again, the, the, the Bible talks about the king and Absalom, not the father and his son Absalom. It's kind of a, 
a public ceremony, if you will, but really it's for show. And really nothing is being resolved through this. So Absalom experiences two years of passivity and three years in exile and two years living in Jerusalem. And he and his father have never had meaningful communication. And as a result, Absalom spends four years undermining his father, trying to overthrow him, trying to hurt his father, the king. He would stand at the city gates and when people would come to Jerusalem for help and for justice, Absalom would say to them, you know, I think you've got a valid claim here, but there's no way to get to the king here in Jerusalem. The system is totally broken. If I were only appointed judge, then people could come to me and they would receive justice. You have to understand Absalom was a handsome man. He was full of charisma. He had the kind of presence that when he walked into a room, people noticed it. He was just like his father used to be when his dad was young and handsome and and, and full of strength. People would see Absalom and and way deep down inside because he was the son of the king, they, they they would bow down to him. But he would not allow them to do that. He would stop them. He'd say, no, no, stand up. He'd take them by the hand. He'd embrace them. He would kiss them and look in their eye and treat them like he was their equal. And the Bible says Absalom stole the hearts of the people. And maybe this is something that's been going on inside of him for a long time. I don't know, because there's another bit of information that you need to know about Amnon, the half-brother who raped Tamar, who Absalom killed. Not only did Amnon violate Absalom's sister, but we also learn in 2 Samuel chapter 3 that Amnon was the firstborn of David's sons. He was the rightful heir to the throne. And if he was out of the way, well, then Absalom kind of had a clear path to the throne, except, of course, for his father David. So after four years of this, when the moment seemed right, Absalom seizes power, and now David has, is forced to go into exile. And here's where we see just how severe this relational breakdown has come to, what it's come to. Absalom has a pavilion built up on the roof of the palace, on the roof of the royal residence, and he publicly has sexual relations with his father's concubine, who, he had, who had been left behind by David, The text says that he does this in the sight of all of Israel. This is his way of humiliating his father in the most degrading way he can imagine. He's letting everyone know who's in charge now. Imagine what this does to David's heart when he hears this news. But David is far away. David has had to flee for his life into the wilderness. And if you've been with us through this series, you've come to learn that David has been in the wilderness before. He's been there for many years. He was there when he was young and strong and brave and while Saul was king and Saul was old and corrupt. But now David is the old man and he has to go out into the wilderness once more. And once more, he is broken. And once more, he is humbled. While traveling in exile, he is weeping. And one day, One of David's enemies just starts to shower down curses on him. And some of David's friends said, let's take care of this guy. We'll just get him out of here right now. In other words, kill him. And David says, no. He says, maybe he is speaking words of God to me. Maybe what he says are things that, that I need to hear. Maybe it's a part of why I'm being sent out into the desert. Maybe he's preaching to me. So let him speak. And I believe that once again, in that wilderness, David opens up his heart to God. And now David, who was a warrior since his youth, who has led so many military campaigns for decades, he now has to lead one more. Only this time, it's going to be against his own son. This time, it's going to be against Absalom. So he and his troops who fled with David They prepare for battle, and he strategizes the battle plan with his generals, but they tell him, you must stay behind, and David does. But he does say this in 2 Samuel 18, 5, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. 
and they go to battle. And many of you know the story. The one thing we learned about Absalom was he was most proud of his beautiful hair. He would let it grow very long and he would cut it off when it became too heavy. The text says that when he cut it off, it could weigh five pounds. That's a lot of hair. But during this battle, his hair gets caught in the thicket of an oak tree. And while he's hanging there by his hair, Joab kills him. And finally, the message comes to David that Absalom is dead. And David has this moment of clarity that sometimes comes too late. The writer says that the king was shaken because suddenly he sees so clearly the life that was once entrusted to him. That baby that he held in his hands so many years ago, that child who adored his father, that little boy who would play soldiers and who would play David and Goliath, that little boy who wanted to be like David because he wanted to be just like his famous daddy. He thinks about his bitterly disillusioned son, a misguided rebel who sees his father publicly being acclaimed by people and leading them, and, and, but he knows another David. He knows the private David. He knows the darker David. The king is shaken because he thinks of all the things that he could have done, but now never will be. He thinks about the father that he wanted to be, the father that he could have been, but wasn't. He thinks about all the stupid choices he made, like all of us have made. He thinks about all the words that he could have spoken to Absalom, but he never spoke them. And finally, he pronounces the words that he could not bring himself to do throughout this whole experience with Absalom. All of a sudden now he speaks and he can't stop saying them. It says they've been stored up inside of him for years now. Now he has to say it over and over again, even though his heart breaks every time he speaks these words. Finally, he says these words in 2 Samuel 18, 33. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And I think his heart breaks most of all because he is finally saying the words that he should have said so many times before, but for whatever reason, he was too busy to do them. And I think the part of why his heart is breaking is because he wondered how this whole sad story might have turned out differently. If he'd only said and lived those words so long ago, my son, my son. And that leads me to the final crossroad that we need to pay attention to in all of our relationships, the speaking crossroad. Love confronts sometimes and love listens. And, and sometimes love needs to ask, but, but one thing is for certain, love must also speak. You have to speak your emotions. And some of you are here today and you're dealing with a relationship that is breaking your heart. And there are words that, that need to be said. And if that person like Absalom were to die and you like David were to be left behind, you too would suddenly have a moment of clarity that often comes when it's too late. And I, and I don't want that to happen to anybody here. So I wanna ask you today, what are the words that you need to say? Maybe I'm sorry, maybe please forgive me, maybe I love you to the bottom of my heart. Perhaps you're kind of like Absalom today and the words you need to say is I forgive you or maybe it's words that need to be spoken to a son or a daughter or a mom or a dad or a wife or a husband where you simply say, let's try again. I love you too much to let this thing burn, crash and burn. Maybe God is prompting you today and it might be the hardest thing you've ever done because there's been weeks and months and even years of distance and stubbornness or pride and self-protection from a heart that I know hurts sometimes. So don't wait to do what David did 
Don't assign yourself to a lifetime of regret. If there are words that need to be spoken and said in your relational world, you need to say them. And you need to say them now. Scott, would you guys come forward and help me to close this down? Nothing can break a heart more than relational heartbreak. But I have found whenever you talk about broken relationships, often people get this feeling that it's too far gone. That it's just too late. There's no way of remedying this. Well, can I just say that we've got to learn from this story just like David did. Because here's the deal. As long as a human heart is still beating, there is healing and there is grace and there is forgiveness to be found at the foot of the cross. See, David's life was not over yet. Although it felt like it was, it wasn't. God still had a whole lot more in store for him for the rest of his life. And likewise, God can free anybody in this room, especially those of you who still have the ability and the time, which is really all of us in this room, to say the words that most need to be spoken. As I've been speaking this morning, I'm sure that God has laid on some of your hearts a person in your life who you need to reconcile with. Things have been said or not said. Things have been done or, or not done, and it has created a divide between you. Today, God wants to start healing your broken heart, and the only way that can happen is to humble yourself and to do the difficult thing. God is calling some of you to do the hard work of reaching out and asking for forgiveness, even if you don't think you've done anything wrong. My former pastor, Tommy Barnett, told me when I left that church to come and be a senior pastor, he said, throughout your ministry, you will need to apologize for things that you have never said and things that you have never done. Because when you do that, it tears down walls that, that otherwise are nearly impossible to break. When you think about doing that, what happens is naturally our pride and, and our sense of justice rises up and, and, and it destroys any motivation to want to do that kind of a thing. But he told me, he said, you have to force yourself to do that because it will be the basis for the healing of that relationship. What I mean is that when the other person realizes that you have humbled yourself and you have asked for forgiveness for something that you didn't even do, guess what? Their stubborn walls of pride start to come down as well. And it puts you both into an environment that is conducive to forgiveness and that is conducive to healing. God is leading some of you today to forgive someone who has hurt you, to start down a path of mending a relationship that has gone bad. You see, life is short, we all know that. And the hurt is too great, and we all know that as well, to carry this around with you throughout your life. God is showing others in this room of your need to be more engaged in your relationships. You need to work harder at, at, at being present in more ways than just physically being present. He wants you to engage emotionally in your relationships. He wants you to understand that it takes more than just love, the feeling. He wants you, your love to include listening and asking and speaking, and yes, even confronting when necessary. There are others here today, you can't grasp this concept of forgiving and healing. It's almost a foreign concept to you, and the reason that it is is because you've never accepted Jesus' forgiveness. You've never received forgiveness of your sins. You've never received salvation through Christ Jesus. Because when you do, and when you experience what Christ has done for you, that opens you up to forgiving other people because you've been forgiven yourself. It also opens you up to wanting to have healthier relationships in your life. To accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe with your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It goes on to say, for it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You see, one of the many reasons that God saves us is so that we would be living examples of his grace in action in a variety of ways, and especially in relationships. There's far too little of that in our contentious world today. And God is telling us to do what others either don't care to do or simply refuse to do. Would you all stand to your feet, please? I wanna open this altar today for a time of prayer. If you need help in a relationship today, why don't you come down to this altar and seek God for, for strength and guidance and wisdom and how to handle that? Maybe it's simply you need courage. Maybe you need a different perspective. Maybe the desire, you need a desire to move in the direction of healing a broken relationship. If you're here today and you desire to receive salvation, this altar is open for you. You can find forgiveness and acceptance here at the, at the foot of the cross. If you have a need of some kind, maybe you're sick, you need healing for your body, maybe you're dealing with a financial situation, something that is frightening you, that's coming up quick and fast, seek God's face. Come down to this altar and seek God's face in whatever it is you're dealing with today. Whatever the reason or the purpose, let's spend some time in prayer. While the worship team sings, you can come down here, I invite you down to the altar. After I have a chance to pray for those at the altar, uh, we will close this service in prayer. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to breathe something that's a that will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required you search much deeper than this through the way things appear you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thinking I made. King of endless words, no one could express how much you deserve. Oh Lord, and though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more than a song. A song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper, Lord. You search much deeper oh, the way things appear. You're looking into my
those at the altar continue to pray. They can stay here as long as they would like. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you in prayer. If you'd bow your head with me, please. Precious Father, we thank you always for your word. Thank you that found within the scriptures are about everything we'd ever need to know about our humanity, relationships, the things we do well, the things we do poorly. God, you point them out to us, but you give us excellent advice on how to solve many of the problems and situations we get ourselves into. I pray for everyone in this place, Father. We all have difficulties in relationships. I pray that you would strengthen us. You would give us wisdom and discernment in all matters as it comes to our, our daily relationships, that we would do those things that love requires of us, and that we would be better at it each and every day. Father, just pray you would strengthen us to, to always do what is right, defer to the feelings and the thoughts of the other, and bring peace into our relationships. Father, I pray that as we go our separate ways today, that you would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, let those conversations be ones that build people up and not tear them down. I also pray, Father, that we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world, the love of Jesus uh, coming through us to the point where people will come to us and say, what is it about you that's different? And we can share that we serve a living Savior and what a difference you make in our life. And we would share with them your goodness and invite them to church with us, Father, so they could taste and see that the Lord is good. Pray also, Father, between now and the time we gather again that you would keep us safe. You would keep us safe from any accidents, any diseases, till we can gather together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. Pray that as we leave here today, we would leave with the love of Christ shining through us. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.